Good evening, this is Rob McClure along with Vicki Iden bringing you your local news from the WORT studios on Bedford Street in downtown Madison. Here are the headlines for this evening. The United States Supreme Court heard oral arguments today in a a case that could overturn Roe v. Wade, the 1973 Supreme Court case that established abortion protections across the nation. The case before the nation's high court challenges a Mississippi law that bans abortions after 15 weeks. It's now a waiting game as the court weighs the case and writes a decision in the next few months. Should the court decide to roll back abortion protections, a 172-year-old law banning abortion in Wisconsin would go into effect, reports Wisconsin Public Radio. The state law, written in 1849, makes providing an abortion a felony, carrying prison time time and a fine of up to $10,000. It has never been repealed in the Wisconsin legislature. It's only been made unenforceable by Roe v. Wade. Well, it was a busy day at the Wisconsin State House with multiple simultaneous high-profile hearings going on. Starting off on election-related news, former state Supreme Court Justice Michael Gavelman has revealed the names of those assisting him in a probe into Wisconsin's 2020 election. He hasn't done so so far. Speaking before lawmakers at a committee hearing, Gableman revealed a list of his staff, which includes out-of-state attorneys, a former Trump administration official, and former private investigators and police officers. The staff is paid between $40 an hour and $10,000 a month of taxpayer money, reports the Wisconsin was, was, <laughs> reports Wisconsin Public Radio. At times, sparks flew between Gableman and Democratic lawmakers. At one point, Gableman and Democratic Representative Mark Spritzer screamed, shame at you across the room at one another. Also at the state capitol today, a slate of about a dozen bills before the Assembly's Committee on Family Law. Several of those bills center on the termination of parental rights based on various parental statuses, including incarceration. WORT will have more follow-up on that meeting tomorrow. And also at the state capitol, meetings from several agencies. The Wisconsin Elections Commission held a marathon meeting. It was the first meeting for the state agency in charge of administering elections since the release of a recent nonpartisan audit of last year's election. The Elections Commission approved several recommendations made in the audit while pushing back, pushing back against mistakes in other sections of the audit, reports the Associated Press. And meanwhile, the State Department of Natural Resources heard public input on a regulation that would cap PFAS contaminant levels in drinking water. We'll have more on that a little later in the broadcast. But here's one more item from the Wisconsin Department of Natural Resources. They announced today that federally federally endangered native mussels found in the St. Croix River in 1987 are not only still alive, but believed to be more than 100 years old. Much like a tree, biologists can usually tell the age of a mussel by counting growth rings in its shell. But due to erosion, biologists had to rely on the location of the mussels, in this case above the St. Croix Falls Dam, which was built in 1907. Biologists were able to determine the age of the mussels due to the fact that the fish that are needed for the mussels to reproduce, moon eye and goldfish, have been unable to reach the mussels due to the dam. Biologists are now taking action to help the mussels reproduce by introducing fish above the dam. The Madison Police Department is launching a new text line for those who call the police. The technology, called SpiderTech, S-P-I-D-R, Tech, will send automatically generated text messages to smartphone users who call 911 or the non-emergency line. Those messages could include explanations on ongoing investigations. It will also include a satisfaction survey. The department says it's the first in the state to use the technology. The family of a Sun Prairie man is suing the UW hospital after the man died of Legionnaire's disease at the facility in 2018, the Wisconsin State General reports. Dennis Fry was admitted to the hospital in October of 2018 for a bone marrow transplant to treat his leukemia. He was hospitalized again in December after it was found that he had contracted the disease. The bacterial illness was found in the hospital's water system and had infected 14 patients at the hospital, with three people dying from the disease. 
A UW hospital spokesperson says the disease grew in the water system after a decision to reduce water flow during low demand times. Cannabis enthusiasts will not be gathering in Madison this weekend, or at least not at an event sponsored by the Shepherd Express, an alt-weekly based out of Milwaukee. The Cannabis Expo was scheduled to happen this Saturday at the Alliant Energy Center, but due to COVID-19 concerns, the event is being postponed until November 2022. A Madison official who handed out candy at a recent meeting did not violate state or city ethics law. That's according to the Madison Ethics Board. The panel met last night to decide if city assessor Mike Michelle Drea improperly influenced votes at an October meeting related to a developer's objections to his property tax assessments. The panel found that candy was not enough to curry such favor. The ethics complaint was filed by prominent Madison developer Terrence Wall, who owns the two properties that were up for a decision at that fateful October meeting. Drea told the Wisconsin State Journal that she took umbrage that the city's board of review would be influenced by snacks. And those are today's headlines. Now on to the rest of the day's top stories. Wisconsin does not regulate acceptable rates of PFAS in water. That's a family of toxic forever chemicals that can cause a bevy of health conditions. Now the State Department of Natural Resources has proposed a cap, and today it held a public hearing on the proposal as water activists and community members voiced their support for the regulation. WORT producer Nate Wegehaupt has the story. As awareness of PFAS chemicals spreads across the country, eight states, such as Ohio and Michigan, have enacted regulations to limit the amount of the chemicals that are allowed in the water. Wisconsin, however, has none. But that soon may change. On Monday, the State Department of Natural Resources finalized thresholds for acceptable amounts of PFAS and PFOA in Wisconsin's surface and drinking water. The DNR has set a cap of 20 parts per trillion for the chemicals, a limit that came by the recommendation of the Department of Health Services. That would be a stricter limit than what is currently recommended by the Federal Environmental Protection Agency, which set a recommendation limit at 70 parts per trillion in 2016. Adam DeWeese, Chief of Public Water Supply with the DNR, says that all municipal water supplies will have to be tested for the chemical. Essentially what would happen is if they exceeded that standard, they would be required in a certain amount of time to come back into compliance, either through some sort of sampling program or some kind of treatment or in some instances abandoning that well that is poisoned essentially and either relying on other wells that they already have that are that are safe or you know drilling new wells in areas that they think would be safe but regulation is not finalized quite yet the regulation still needs to be formally approved by the DNR and state lawmakers Today, the DNR held a public hearing to listen to both water activists and members of the community give their opinions on the regulation. Ed Cohen of Oconomowoc gave his support to the decision. Obviously, our health, recreational opportunities, property value, and overall quality and necessities of life depend on clean water. All of our lives depend on clean water. I therefore support Permanent Rule DG 2419 and the implementation of Rule WY 23-19. Paul Mathewson is a staff scientist at Clean Wisconsin, a nonprofit environmental advocacy organization. He attended today's hearing and says he's glad the state is addressing the issue. Yeah, so I think these we think these are a good starting point, especially when you combine them with the the next round of chemicals that they are that the DNR is currently working on, the cycle eleven contaminants that include another 14 PFAS compounds. You know, it makes sense to start with PFOA and PFOS since they're the best known, best studied ones, and so we have the most information on them. But they're not the only ones out there. There are only two of thousands of chemicals, uh, PFAS chemicals out there. So it's going to be, you know, it's the start, and hopefully it's just the start of the process of getting standards in place that protect Wisconsin residents from PFAS, all sorts of PFAS contamination problems. The limit put in place by the DNR would only affect community water supplies, a portion of the state's over 11,000 wells. 
Private wells would not be subject to the regulations. Dewey's estimates that around 2% of the state's 2,000 community wells would need to be serviced in some way. In Madison, one well on the city's east side has been shut down since 2019 due to concerns over PFAS contamination. City officials have been waiting on the DNR to issue specific limits on PFAS chemicals. Laura Ola, Executive Director for Citizens for Safe Water Across Badger, echoes Clean Wisconsin, applauding this as a first step, but says that more wells need to be tested in order to fully understand the scope of the problem. It's exceedingly important because right now there's no requirements for public water supplies to be tested for any form of PFAS chemicals. And that means right now less than 1% of the state's 11,000 water systems, public water systems have been tested for PFOA, PFOS, or any of the thousands of other PFAS chemicals. But this is such an important start so to get some information to people so they can make informed decisions about where they're getting their drinking water from. The Madison Water Utilities did not respond to a request for comment by airtime. The regulation still needs to be officially signed by the Department of Natural Resources by the beginning of the year. After that, it will head for approval to the state legislature. If approved there, it's expected to go into effect next summer. Reporting for WORT News, I'm Nate Wuggehout. As Congress continues to debate on the Biden administration's latest public spending package known as Build Back Better, a new report summarizes health coverage benefits for families. Here's Mike Mullen of the Wisconsin News Connection. As Congress debates the Build Back Better plan, a new report shows how it could address health coverage needs for children and families. Policy experts in Wisconsin say there could be key benefits in maternal care. The final version of the Biden administration's spending package is up in the air, but an analysis from the Georgetown University Center for Children and Families says there are some health care provisions to monitor, including extending postpartum Medicaid coverage for one year. William Park Sutherland with the group Kids Forward says it would be a major benefit to new mothers, even as Wisconsin has recently moved to expand the window to 90 days. That's still you know, not nearly enough time to ensure continuity of care and make sure that moms get the follow-up care that they need and also have continuous coverage to address uh, maternal health concerns. He says the year-long coverage period under Build Back Better would especially benefit black mothers in Wisconsin. Research has shown their maternal mortality rate is five times higher than white mothers. The Biden plan has won House approval but faces obstacles in the Senate, with some members saying it's too broad in scope and too expensive. Joan Alker, who heads the Georgetown Center, adds that Build Back Better would also permanently fund the Children's Health Insurance Program so it doesn't have to be renewed in Congress every few years. Hopefully this will provide an opportunity with stability in the CHIP program to allow states to try to get to the finish line here and get all kids covered. Build Back Better doesn't expand either Medicaid or CHIP, but the report shows it could bolster the programs and keep insurance coverage stable for families dealing with temporary changes to their income. In Wisconsin, kids and families of three earning up to about $67,000 a year are eligible for coverage. Mike Moen, Wisconsin News Connection. Find our rate trust indicators to support transparency and accuracy at publicnewsservice.org. Time is now 6.20 and you're listening to the live local news on WORT. The Wisconsin Supreme Court issued a ruling yesterday to hold firm on redistricting maps, adopting a least changes approach to the state's next legislative and congressional maps. 
That's a win for the Wisconsin GOP, who drew the original maps in play back in 2011. WORT producer Nate Weggehaupt spoke with uh, journalist Sean Johnson on the ruling. I'm on the line with Sean Johnson, Capitol Bureau Chief at Wisconsin Public Radio. He's the co-host of the podcast Mapped Out, which guides listeners through Wisconsin's redistricting history. Sean, thank you so much for talking with me today. Thanks for having me. So starting off with yesterday's news first, what is significant about the state Supreme Court ruling yesterday? Why is it thought to be a win for Republicans and a loss for Democrats? I'd say it's a win for Republicans because the court ruled that it would consider what's referred to as a least changes map when it rules on redistricting. In other words, the the court decided that instead of kind of starting from scratch and drawing a new map or drawing a map that, uh, you know, is maybe more balanced in terms of partisanship, that it would start with the map Republicans drew and former Republican Governor Scott Walker signed in 2011 because it was passed by a legislature. And, you know, in the, in the court's rationale, the conservative majority's rationale, since it's the legislature's job to redistrict, that's where we're going to start. And we're not going to change too much of it. That's not our job. So can you tell us a little bit more about the background to that 2011 redistricting process? What was the context to how those maps were drawn? Yeah, typically in Wisconsin, over the last several decades, uh, you've had federal courts have a much bigger hand in redistricting because in Wisconsin, we've historically had divided government. You know, you only redistrict uh, every 10 years to, you know, adjust for population after the U.S. Census. And, um, you know, typically when that has happened, you've had one party in control of at least one chamber of the legislature and the other party in control of the governor's office. And when there's deadlock in between the legislature and the governor, it goes to the courts and it has typically gone to the federal courts. That was not the case in 2011 because we had nationally an historic Republican wave election. So Republicans won big majorities that year in the state assembly, in the state Senate, in the governor's office in Wisconsin. And they used that power in 2011 to draw new maps that entrenched their power, helped them hold big majorities in the legislature, even in years when Democrats performed well statewide. And so I think when you, when you look at what that map has done for Republicans, and you realize that the state Supreme Court's position is that we're starting from there when we adjust this year's map, you see why yesterday's ruling from the court was so significant. So circling back a bit to yesterday's ruling, can you tell us a bit about the majority opinion as well as the dissent? The majority opinion was written by Justice Rebecca Bradley, and it was joined by the court's three other conservative justices. So the Wisconsin Supreme Court has a 4-3 conservative majority. The real question that we had going into this case was whether conservative Justice Brian Hagedorn might break from that majority because he's done that on some high-profile cases involving COVID-19, involving you know challenges to Joe Biden's victory in Wisconsin. And so there was some thought that you know if anybody would do it, if anyone would break from conservatives, it could be Brian Hagedorn. But that wasn't the case in this one. He largely sided with Justice Bradley's opinion here. And her opinion largely adopted the argument that was advanced by the conservative Wisconsin Institute for Law and Liberty, which brought this lawsuit. You know, she said, we have a map here from 2011 that was passed by a legislature, signed by a governor, and survived federal court challenges. It's fair to start there. Brian Hagedorn said the idea that we would try to, that, that there's nothing that bans the legislature from making partisan choices when, you know, they draw a map, that there's nothing in the Wisconsin Constitution that says you can't be political, you can't be partisan when you're redistricting. But he says that's their choice to make, the legislature's choice to make. That's not our choice to make as a court. So the court 
guests will still be having hearings through this month and into January. What sort of things are they still deciding? I think, uh, you know, it's, that's a little bit to be determined. Uh, it, they are not talking about a no changes map because, you know, we have had new population data out that has made the current legislative districts no longer valid. You know, that there's too much population variance from one district to another, and that's basically violating a, a key principle of redistricting. You want to, in theory, have one person, one vote. Every district in, say, legislative districts should be pretty close in population to the others, and congressional districts have to be basically identical in population. And so the court will now have to evaluate options on how these districts do change. They're just not going to go so far as to say we're we're going to make the map more fair or consider partisanship when we do it. So I'm not sure exactly what it's going to look like in terms of what these hearings uh, that the court holds, you know, are, are are attempting to find and where the court might kind of tinker around the edges. They're going to have to make some changes. It's just not going to be a wholesale change to the map that Republicans do. So after the court is done with all of their hearings, what is the next step in the redistricting process? I think we don't know yet what role the federal court might play here, because, you know, I don't expect the Democrats to just kind of accept the state Supreme Court's ruling is the last say in this matter. They wanted to get this case into federal court anyway, because they've said federal courts have a history of handling redistricting. And so, you know, if there are issues that they can raise based on federal law or the U.S. Constitution, they will definitely do it. But the federal court has already showed some deference to the state Supreme Court when it comes to this stuff, you know, because it's, it is a state law. Redistricting is a, you know, a, it's a state decision, and they, they've shown some deference to the state courts here. I, I just wouldn't expect that that will be the last we hear from Democrats on this or the last that we hear from the federal court because of so, you know, there's just so much at stake when it comes to how these districts get drawn in terms of who, you know, ends up representing the people of Wisconsin in the legislature. So you said that the Democrats would probably push for this to go to a more federal court. Is there anything else that the Democrats would be able to do in order to get a more fairly drawn map? I am not sure that they're going to, in this redistricting cycle, get the maps that they're looking for. I mean, Governor Tony Evers advanced his his People's Maps Commission map as, you know, his alternative to the Republican plan. And that map would have been far more competitive than the Republican districts. And, you know, it's a, it was an alternative. It still is an alternative that courts could consider, but it's it doesn't carry the force of law. And so and we now we've now heard from the state Supreme Court that it's not the type of plan that they're just going to latch on to. So at least in the short term, this may not be something that where Democrats are going to get a major victory. I think over the course of the decade, there's a chance that you could see the majority on the state Supreme Court change. There is an election for state Supreme Court in 2023 that could swing the balance of the court to uh, liberal justices. And then that could open the door potentially to you know a partisan gerrymandering claim in state court. But it's kind of hard to say what voters are going to be thinking about in the year 2023, let alone who might be running for the court then. So uh, that's a long way ahead of us. So if this map does get sworn into law there, would we have to wait another decade in order to have a chance to redraw the maps? No, not. I mean, that's typically how it goes, but it doesn't have to go that way. Um, The legislature and the governor could at any time during the decade redraw the maps if they wanted to. Um, And that would apply whether you had Democrats in positions of power or Republicans. You know, if Republicans were to win the elections in 2022 and have the governor's office, they could make the map more Republican, theoretically. Um, But, you know, there there could be in the middle of the decade uh, an Another, you know, you've you've seen partisan gerrymandering lawsuits in other states where 
state Supreme Courts are more favorable to Democrats. So if our state Supreme Court were ever to become more favorable to Democrats, that is something that could happen here in Wisconsin. Sean, I think that's all the questions that I have for you. Do you have any final thoughts that you'd like to share? No, I mean, there's a lot we need to learn about the particulars of how our map is going to shape up still. But um, I, I think that, you know, Tuesday's decision by the court was definitely a big one. I've been talking with Sean Johnson, Capitol Bureau Chief with WPR and co-host of the podcast Mapped Out. Sean, thank you again for taking the time to talk with me today. Thanks for having me. The time is now 6.32, and you're listening to the live local news on WORT. I'm your host, Robert McClure, here with my co-host, Vicki Iden. Thanks for staying with us for the second half. You may have noticed a new mural on Madison's east side. It reads, in part, Kepler versus Wisconsin DNR. That's the product of Ken Kepler, who has owned a small property in the neighborhood for decades. When Kepler bought the property in the late 80s, he didn't know about its former occupants or the lasting chemicals that he's now being held responsible for cleaning up. And he may be running out of options. For more, News Director Shali Pittman spoke with Laura Schulte, reporter at the Milwaukee Journal Sentinel, who published a story on the struggle yesterday. We are on uh, the capital budget Amendment number five, which is in the Economic Development Division um, regarding the acquisition of 351 Russell Street. Thank you. With 16 no's, Amendment five fails. That was audio of a Madison Common Council meeting last month. In that clip, a total of 16 alders voted not to purchase a property for the purposes of environmental cleanup. The property in question, a small brick building on Russell Street on Madison's east side. Over the decades, it served as a recording studio, a rental apartment, and importantly, a dry cleaners. Now, the battle to clean up toxic chemicals from that dry cleaners is the central struggle of a Madison resident. It's also the topic of a new article from the Milwaukee Journal Sentinel. That article is called, They Came After Me Immediately, Madison Man's Property Becomes a Financial Nightmare Because of the Land's Dry Cleaning Chemical Legacy. Joining me now is Laura Schulte, state government reporter at the Milwaukee Journal Sentinel, who wrote that article. Laura, you scooped us. Thanks so much for talking with us. Thanks so much for having me on. So throughout this article, you profile Ken Kepler, who has owned the property at 351 Russell Street since the late 80s. Tell me a little bit about the history of this property and how Mr. Kepler came to find out his property had contaminants. Yeah, so Mr. Kepler, as you said, uh, purchased this property in 1987. At that point, um, the building had already been zoned as residential. Um, he said the person who owned the building previous to him had actually renovated it and turned it into a living space. And he said, you know, as a young musician, he was really excited to have a space that could double his living quarters. So he used the, the large front space, um, which had been a, a seamstress when he moved in. He converted that into a recording studio and then lived in the area off the back little living quarters there. He said he didn't find out until about 2016 that in the 50s or 60s, the building had actually served as a dry cleaning facility. That was never mentioned, he said, uh, when he purchased the property, nor was it mentioned uh, during any of the inspections that he had done before purchasing that building. Let's talk a little bit about the contaminants that are on the property. Tetrachloroethylene, or PCE, what is it used for and what do we know about it now? Yeah, so basically um, the chemical was used as an industrial grease remover. So people would take in, you know, towels or clothing um, from facilities where grease was used and it was coming into contact with, you know, clothing or other materials. And, you know, PCE has been known to be toxic for, for a long time, but the DNR told me that it was only within the last 10 to 15 years that research has emerged showing how toxic the vapors can be when they leach up through the soil. So what happened, what likely happened in, in Mr. Kepler's case is that, you know, these these contaminants were used at this dry cleaner. 
they were, you know, dumped down the sink, uh, dumped down the drain at the end of the day. In some cases, you know, these chemicals were even, you know, dumped out the back door when, when they were done being used. And it leached down into the soil where it stayed. And that, that, that's the big issue there. Um, and now it's, it's coming back up through the soil in the form of a vapor in the air, and it's getting into people's homes through their foundations. And not only is it coming up, it's also traveling through the soil into a larger area, impacting, you know, a, a large east side neighborhood that's uh, pretty densely populated. So what are the, what's the concern behind this chemical? It has health effects, correct? So according to the EPA, um, short-term exposure can cause um, irritation to your respiratory tract in your eyes, impairment of coordination, dizziness, headaches, sleepiness, and unconsciousness. Um, but chronic exposure um, can lead to much worse effects, including uh, neurological issues, as well as adverse effects in your liver, kidney, immune system, and an impact to reproduction. It is also likely to be carcinogenic, uh, according to the EPA. So you mentioned that Mr. Kepler found out in 2015. That's two and a half decades after he purchased the property. Do you have any explanation for why it took so long uh, for the Department of Natural Resources to realize and inform him? Yeah, um, I think it took a really long time for the DNR to you know, make their way through lists of sites that had been home to dry cleaners. Um, this site, I, I believe the DNR told me, was found you know, going through old telephone books uh, just to look up you know, the addresses of former dry cleaners. And that's why it took so long. There were a lot of dry cleaners. I never realized how uh, big of a business dry cleaning was, but back in the day, uh, that's, where, that's where people took their clothes to you know, get cleaned or in this case, you know, get <laughs> industrially cleaned and get grease out of them. So it's 2015, Mr. Kepler finds out, and um, and he is still struggling um, with opportunities and, and how to clean this up. He says that's something that he cannot afford. The DNR maintains that he can. You talk about this series of events that kind of led up to him being responsible for environmental mitigation and opportunities for help that he's been excluded from. What are some of those kind of opportunities to clean up this chemical? Yeah, so um, one of the opportunities to, you know, clean up these sites, um, there there was a fund established years ago by the legislature to help clean up dry cleaning sites. Um, that, that fund was closed several years ago because there are essentially too many sites and not enough money there. Um, and he also probably wouldn't have qualified for that money because the site is no longer a dry cleaner. You can't tell that there was ever a dry cleaner there at this point. Um, and a lot in the sites that are you know, in the fund currently are current dry cleaners. So there are some dry cleaners around Madison that have, you know, benefited from the money in that fund. So when we're talking about remediation, uh, what exactly do we mean there? If you talk to the DNR about this, it's not um, an easy answer. Um, you know, it could involve, you know, the removal of, you know, the dirt there to get it out of the ground. Um, but, you know, with sites like this, as it was explained to me, um, the contamination is never completely done. It's going to require monitoring um, and consistent testing for years and years. Zooming out, I mean, as you mentioned uh, just a moment ago, this isn't a one-time issue. There uh, have been and are a lot of dry cleaners. You write that there are more than 120 of these kind of brown zone sites just in Dane County that need remediation. Are those all dry cleaners or are there other industries? And, And can you tell us about some of those sites? Yeah, so those were all sites um, that the DNR had classified, you know, under the same type of contamination. Um, So they all um, have been impacted by this contaminant. Details on those are available on the the DNR site. I didn't go into a lot of detail about those in the story. Yeah, I was just struck by more than a a thousand in Wisconsin, um, which is quite a lot. So you also take a look at your story uh, at legislation that has been proposed to protect those, quote, innocent buyers. It actually has some lawmakers on both sides of the aisle concerned, though others say that it could reduce liability 
for polluters. So can you tell us about this innocent buyers legislation? Yeah. So the innocent buyer legislation was first introduced in, in 2017 um, by former Madison Democratic representative Chris Taylor. Um, the legislation kind of ended up stalling out after being introduced. Um, but Mr. Kepler has tried to keep this on, you know, his legislators radars. They, of course, uh, Chris Taylor is no longer uh, a representative, um, but he has, you know, been in contact with his new representative, Francesca Hong, and she said that, you know, she will give this bill a consideration if it comes back to the floor. Um, Republican Senator Andre Jacques of De Pere has revived the legislation and is hoping to see it signed into law. He said he's hoping to work with his colleagues across the aisle to get something like this passed to protect people like Mr. Kepler you know, from bearing the full brunt of contamination like this and having, you know, to pay for testing and remediation, which is not inexpensive. So we started out with the budget proposal at a City of Madison meeting in kind of early November to buy this property in order to clean it up. Um, And of course, that failed at budget time. What is the end point here? Like, it seems like Mr. Kepler is still searching for a solution to this issue. Yeah, he, he is. And right now he is, um, you know, talking with the city of Madison, you know, to potentially get this property into a Brownfields program, um, which would, you know, provide a grant, which is it's, it's run by the EPA. The city would have to apply for this Brownfields program and it would provide money and technical assistance to assess the property, from my understanding. You know, other solutions could be the legislature taking a look at this and establishing a new fund to help clean up sites like this. They they could set aside a pot of money that could help, you know, test, um, assess, and uh, mitigate these sites, but that has to be taken up and looked at by the legislature before that can happen. All right. Well, Laura, thanks so much for joining me. Yeah, thank you so much for having me on. Laura Schulte is the state government reporter at the Milwaukee Journal Sentinel. You can read her article about this and all sorts of other things at jsonline.com. And it's time now for the most comprehensive weather report on the airwaves with WORT weather guru Rob McClure. Well, it certainly felt damp this morning, and one might even have occasionally sensed a drop or two descending from the sky, just like on Monday, whatever may actually have come down, uh, produced nothing more than an unmeasurable trace on the instrumentation out at the airport. So we did finish out November with just 36 hundredths of an inch of moisture when all was said and done, which made it the sixth driest November on record, that record that stretches back 150 years. The month was ever so slightly cooler than normal as well, with an overall temperature deficit of two-tenths of a degree Fahrenheit. Will December be any wetter? Or, I suppose, more to the point, are we ever going to see a decent snow this cold season? Uh, Those questions are still in flux. The prognostications on the longer-range computer models that we would begin to see some stronger and more deeply amplified waves beginning to move across the continent in December is finally looking like it might be coming to fruition as we go into next week. Both the European and the global forecast systems computer models have significant systems developing to our west on Sunday, Tuesday, and perhaps again on Friday of next week. Part of what will be essential in seeing anything interesting out of, especially those latter two waves, will be how much cold air that first system on Sunday can drag southward down the plains behind it and how that may end up then reshaping the upper air trajectories for the ensuing systems. Right now, as you can see, if you have a look at the water vapor image of North America that we have linked up on the WORT weather webpage, the upper air pattern across the continent looks much as it has over this past few weeks, with the primary polar jet articulating over a western upper ridge and then southeastward over the spot, the central Great Lakes into an eastern upper trough. And that pattern's been keeping us on the uh, warm and dry southwestern sides of the passing Alberta clippers that we've seen. Sunday's storm, this first one coming up, which will approach later Saturday on a slightly more west-to-east trajectory and with a full-on southward push of Arctic air behind it, is likely to carve out a nice deep upper trough down the central plains or Mississippi Valley so that with luck, 
The ensuing wave on Tuesday will dig far enough westward that its lead side northeastbound jet stream branch will be positioned so that the low and mid-level circulations with that storm will lift up through here or somewhere near here. So far, that's looking uh, generally feasible, I would say, at least to judge from the uh, various recent iterations of the model. So we'll see how things continue to evolve from here. Possibility, then, for seeing snow by, say, this time next week. In the meantime, that first storm on Sunday looks to have uh, some potential for getting us wet, uh, but not a whole lot else besides wind coming from that one, I don't think. Anyway, back to tonight, the passing mid-level cloudiness uh, over us will continue through much of the night with southwesterly winds at 8 to 15 miles per hour holding temperatures up in the 40-degree range. Those winds, which are flowing into the latest clipper system to be passing us to the north, will veer more west and northwest as we go on through the day tomorrow and increase tomorrow to about 12 to 20 miles per hour in the afternoon, maybe a little gusty as well, especially after it clears. A fair amount of morning sunshine might uh, take us possibly towards 50 degrees before stronger cold air advection then kicks in in the afternoon. Temperatures will drop to the lower mid-30s tomorrow night on decreasing northwesterly winds. Clouds will thicken again overnight with a weaker weaker upper impulse passing southeastward over the area as we get on towards Friday morning. Some of the models have been producing a little uh, light precipitation from that. Uh, I'm skeptical it uh, won't again be scuppered by dry air below cloud base like a lot of the precipitation was today. So Friday is likely to start with a fair bit of cloud cover, mid-level cloud cover mostly, uh, hopefully lifting and breaking some later on. High temperatures will reach the low 40s on westerly winds at uh, 4 to 7 miles per hour. We'll see some passing clouds uh, continue through the overnight with a low temperature in the upper 20s on stronger northwesterly winds. I think we should see a fair bit of sun on Saturday before uh, system cloudiness begins to roll in from the west maybe later in the day. Uh, High temperatures will reach the uh, mid or upper 30s. Winds will be backing south on the warm side of that developing storm to our west as we go overnight and then through Sunday. So we may be back in the low 40s on Sunday, uh, possibly with some intermittent rains. I don't think those will amount to much if we see them. The uh, temperature at the station on Bedford Street currently is 41 degrees. The dew point temperature is 39. Uh, Broken uh, mid-level overcast up at about 19,000 feet. The winds are out of the southwest at 10 miles per hour. The barometer has been falling uh, slowly over the past few hours at 29.70 inches of mercury now. It's now 6.49 p.m. and you're listening to the live local news on WORT. We go now to the year 1961, when planned and unplanned changes come to campus and State Street, and the city tees off on major developments for parks and recreation. Stu Levitan has this edition of Madison in the 60s. Madison in the 60s, December 1961. On the 13th, nearly 200 freezing firemen battle a five-alarm blaze that rages out of control for six hours in sub-zero cold on the north side of the 400 block of State Street, doing about $500,000 in damage. Victor Music and the Telus Mater Gift Shop are among the 16 businesses damaged or destroyed. The blaze begins due to wiring being overloaded by two electrical heaters which were left on overnight. 
firefighters use one and a half million gallons of water, which freezes into such a thick sheet of ice that city workers need almost a ton of calcium chloride salt to make the street passable. Eighth Ward Alder Wendell Phillips quickly introduces a resolution directing the parking utility to buy the land for development as a surface parking lot. But the utility just as quickly rejects that idea, moving ahead instead on its plan to build a parking ramp on Carroll Street, across from the vocational school, to be funded by a million-dollar revenue bond, which the council unanimously approves. The day after Christmas, Alder Thomas Stavrum tries to play Santa for residents of the city's trailer parks, but runs afoul of council ethical standards. An accountant who works for the city's largest trailer community, Oak Park, 3901 Packers Avenue, Stavrum leads the fight on the council floor against a $3 increase in the monthly municipal parking fee the city charges trailers. Although he doesn't vote on final passage, Stavrum makes motions to kill the increase from $10 to $13 and engages in bitter debate on the fee. Council President Alder Ethel Brown says she is, quote, appalled by Stavrum's conduct. Stavrum supported a fee increase two years ago before he was hired by Oak Park. Bowing to opposition from area alder Leonard Porter and neighborhood residents, the Madison Housing Authority drops plans for a 20-unit public housing project on Aberg Avenue at Ruskin Street. MHA Director Robert Carlson explains that the authority does not want to, quote, create a lot of ill will in the Northside neighborhood. Instead, 10 units will be added to proposed MHA projects at Truex Park and on Rethke Avenue to go along with the planned 35 units in South Madison and the 60 units for the elderly in the Greenbush neighborhood on Regent Street. The Housing Authority and the Madison Redevelopment Authority also both unanimously approved the principle of merging into a proposed Joint Housing and Redevelopment Authority, to give the housing folks the professional staff support it needs in developing its 160 new units, the city's first public housing since the Veterans Project at Truex Park in 1948. MRA Executive Director Roger Rupnow, slated to head the combined agency, says consolidation is, quote, the best way to operate because of the real close ties that exist between public housing and urban renewal. Under the proposal prepared by Plan Director Kenneth Clark at the direction of Mayor Henry Reynolds, staff would report to both authority boards under an organizational structure still to be determined. On campus, the regents approve in principle the North Lower Campus Redevelopment Plan, featuring an underground auditorium and high-rise guest house on the site of the old Red Gym Armory, underground parking, a large memorial plaza, two pedestrian skywalks over Langdon Street, which would be lowered and made one-way westbound, and a lakefront location for the Wisconsin Alumni Association. Some details may change, says Professor Kurt F. Wendt, Dean of the College of Engineering and Chair of the Campus Planning Committee, but, quote, we don't plan to make any wholesale departure from the basic concepts we have established. The Regents also approve $7 million in construction contracts to build the first two units of the Southeast Residence Halls on the block bounded by Park, Johnson, Dayton, and Murray Streets. The federal government's program supporting the erection of fallout shelters is, quote, a decision to accept general nuclear war as an instrument of national policy, according to an open letter signed by 37 university faculty. They call the effort, quote, a tragic misdirection of our thinking and energies and a dreadful distortion of our Western values and morality. Among the signers, history professor and Naval Academy graduate William Appleman Williams, botanist Hugh Iltis, biochemist Carl Paul Link, and zoology professor Seymour Abrahamson, husband of attorney Shirley Abrahamson. Happier news from Camp Randall, as Madison native Pat Richter is named to the UPI All-American football team. The only college junior named to the first team, Richter holds all the major Wisconsin receiving records and most of the minor ones. Maybe the former East High Pergolder star will inspire today's Madison pupils to get in better shape 
as 32 of 80 Madison youngsters fail a physical fitness test administered by the YMCA. Better than the national 60% failure rate, but far below the 10% failure rate for European children. YMC Youth Director Quay Cox blames parents for setting a bad example by their own lack of exercise and for letting children lounge in front of the TV set rather than being active outside. They'll certainly grow up in a Madison with better and better outdoor opportunities as there's big news for city parks and recreation. The city buys 580 acres of farmland just east of the new Interstate Highway 90 and south of the newly planned Highway 12 and 18 to Cambridge for two 18-hole golf courses. The $331,000 cost is subsidized by a $100,000 grant from the Federal Urban Open Space Program, the first grant offered under the new Kennedy administration program. Four alders vote against accepting the grant. The as-yet-unnamed facility, to open in 1965, will replace the Monona Golf Course, which the Board of Education recently bought for the new high school. The land lies in the town of Blooming Grove and is expected to be annexed to the city. And Mrs. Otelia Cheech dies at age 89, meaning that the city will someday soon have a 75-acre park named after her father, Charles Elver, a German immigrant who owned the Elver House and Capitol Hotel, and died in 1928. His will created a trust fund, which at the death of his daughter was earmarked for park purposes. Now the city just has to find the appropriate acreage. And that's this week's Madison in the 60s. For your award-winning, vaccine-taking, mask-wearing WRT News team, I'm Stu Levitan. And that does it for our show this evening. Thanks for listening to WORT's live local news at 6. You could be part of this news team. Just call us up at 256-2001 during business hours. If you want to volunteer, we could sure use you for reporting or other purposes, and we provide all the training, and it's also a lot of fun. Special thanks to feature contributor Stu Levitan this evening. Chuck Kademan engineered tonight's broadcast. Nate Weggehaupt is the producer. And Sholly Pittman is the news director here at WORT. I'm your host, Robert McClure. And I'm your host, Vicki Iden. Stay up to date with the WORT local news podcast. Subscribe on iTunes Podcasts, Spotify, and wherever else you get your podcasts. Up next is Query, followed by This Way Out. Good night. Thank you.